Well, that was a blessing as always. Thanks to Riley and to Lynn and our sister and the rest of the musicians for blessing us with such a wonderful time of music. We thank the Lord and Abner and Josiah and Phil for their sermons on Genesis, Exodus and Leviticus. And tonight we plan to start with numbers, as Tom already said. There are people who care about living refined lives in their manners, in their lifestyle, in their comfort, in their grooming. But the scriptures command us to live another type of refined lives. Lives refined or cleansed by sin, holy lives. And the book of Numbers teaches us how to cultivate spiritually refined lives as believers. Tonight, we plan to study a key passage in each of the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers. Don't fear, it should be quick. That's the plan. And we plan to focus on 10 lessons in Numbers that help you to cultivate a spiritually refined life. 10 lessons in Numbers that help you to cultivate a spiritually refined life. These are the 10 lessons. A lesson in faithfulness, in grace, in redemption, in sovereignty, in integrity, in prayer, in giving, in obedience, in remembrance, and in petition. And just from that, that gives you an idea of how, far from being a boring book, you'll see how exciting and helpful Numbers is for your personal growth as a Christian. So let's start with the first one in Numbers chapter 1. Let's open our Bible in Numbers chapter 1. And let's look at a lesson in faithfulness. A lesson in faithfulness. From chapter 1 to chapter 10, the Lord prepared Israel to conquer the land of Canaan. And for this reason, in the first four chapters, we see lists of numbers. In chapter 1, we see a list of the number of Israelites who could go to war. Look at Numbers 1.1. Numbers 1.1 then Yahweh spoke to Moses in the wilderness or desert of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying. This means that they had been there in the desert of Sinai for 11 months since they left Egypt in Exodus chapter 12. This is a historical context of the book of Numbers. In fact, Notice in Numbers 1, 1, the phrase, in the wilderness of. That phrase translates a Hebrew word, which is the title of the book in the Hebrew text. This is the book of, in the wilderness of, or in the desert of. So, what are we studying tonight? The book of, in the desert of. That is a good title, because the book of Numbers describes 39 years in which the nation of Israel traveled in the desert. They left Egypt around 1445 B.C. And the following 39 years are covered by the book of Numbers. And we would finish the book at around 1405 B.C. That was a year when the Holy Spirit wrote the book of Numbers through Moses. And Numbers was written to the children of the Israelites who left Egypt. Also known as the second generation of the Exodus. And we can divide the book in two parts. Part 1, the first generation in the desert, chapters 1 through 25. 
the first generation in the desert, chapters 1 through 25, and part 2, the second generation in Moab, chapters 26 through 36. The second generation in Moab, in chapters 26 through 36. Now, why did the Lord write this book? To prepare Israel to enter the land. And as Abner explained to us several months ago, he prepared them to enter the land by refining them. By refining them or by cleansing them from sin. Now look at Numbers 1-2. Notice what God said to Moses in Numbers 1-2. Take a census, that is they had to count, of all the congregation of the sons of Israel by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, every male head by head, verse 3, from 20 years old and upward, Whoever is able to go out to war in Israel. This indicates that the census was to find out which men could be part of the Israeli army. And he continues, verse 3 at the end. You, that is Moses, and Aaron shall number them by their armies. And look in verse 4. Who would help Moses and Aaron to count all these men? Verse 4, the Lord told Moses, With you, moreover, there shall be a man of each tribe each one head of his father's household. Now they do the counting in Numbers 1 and go down to verse 45. In verse 45, we, found out, we find out the final count of how many men could go to war. Verse 45, So all the number of men of the sons of Israel by their father's households from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war in Israel, 46, even all the number of men were 603,550. There are people who think that these are too many men and that this is an exaggerated or symbolic number. But there is nothing in the text that indicates this. Notice that just as God said in verse 45, 20 years old and upward, we have no problem understanding this as a literal number. So also in the rest of chapter 1 and up to here in verse 46, 603,550 is a literal number. And if to this total number of men 20 years and older, we add the 22,000 Levites of Numbers 339, and we include the women and children, we end up with an estimated total, as Josiah Groman told us a few weeks ago, we end up with an estimated total of about 2 million Israelites. Is this important? Yes. Why? Because this is a proof of God's faithfulness. How? Well, in Genesis, you remember... The Lord promised Abraham and Sarah, who could not have children, He promised them that He would give them many descendants. And in spite of living as slaves in the Exodus, in the book of Exodus, in spite of living as slaves for over 400 years in Egypt, in spite of living in the desert with so many dangers and threats, here they are, about 2 million Israelites. Only the Lord could do this. This truth should encourage us to trust in the Lord and His Word. Because He will always fulfill it. Always. Not even the smallest detail of His Word will remain unfulfilled. As He said in Matthew 5.18. Now look at chapter 2. Here's lesson 2 of 10. A lesson in grace. A lesson in grace. Here in Numbers 2, after counting the soldiers in chapter 1, in chapter 2, the Lord gives 
the formation for the Israelite camp. Look at it in Numbers 2.1. This is how they were supposed to camp. In Numbers 2.1. Now Yahweh spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, The sons of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard, with the banners of their father's households. They shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. Now, why camp around the tabernacle? Who manifested his presence in the tabernacle? Yahweh, the Lord. And, as Abner explained, the formation of the tribes around the tabernacle demonstrated to the nation that Yahweh was the king of Israel. Why? Because in those days, the troops of a nation set their camps around their king. Remember, that's exactly how Saul did it when he slept and his men slept around him in the book of 1 Samuel. So, in this case, the Lord used the formation of the camp to show the world, the nations around Israel, that Yahweh was their king. This was a testimony to the Lord's kingship over Israel. And it is the same with us. Not that we camp around Grace Church, although some of us would like to, but... We might be removed by the police, so we don't recommend it. But as Titus 2 says, this is the principle. We make the gospel attractive by showing that our Lord is our King. And we do this by how we live on a daily basis. We show people around us who's our King by the way we live. But look at Numbers 2.3. Look at the formation of the tribes in the camp. Numbers 2.3 now those who camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah by their armies. Now, we would expect the tribe of the firstborn Reuben to be the first one. Or the tribes that descended from Joseph, Jacob's favorite, to be the first ones. But here we see a taste of the sovereign grace of God in choosing the tribe of Judah as the first one on the list. Remember the tribe of Judah didn't deserve this privilege. None of them did. And in one sense, Judah didn't, it was worse for them because it was Judah, the one who sinned with Tamar in Genesis chapter 39. And despite this, the tribe that descended from Judah was to be the first one. Why? Because Judah was the tribe that God chose in His grace to bring the king from. Remember, in Revelation 5, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, not of Reuben, of Judah. And the scepter, the scepter won't depart from Judah. The king will come from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49. And we see that reflected here. And in verse 3 continues. Notice how the Lord at the end of verse 3 appoints who would be the leader of this tribe. And the leader of the sons of Judah Nation, the son of Aminadab. God granted this man nation the privilege of being a relative of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this in Ruth 4.20. Now, was there something special in nation that made him worthy of being born in the Messianic line? No. This was a privilege given to him by God, by grace alone, without him having done anything to earn it. It is the same with us. Since we are sinners who only deserve hell, any blessing we enjoy 
It is because of our Lord's sovereign grace. So it is with our salvation. So it is with every temporal blessing that we enjoy. If you have the ability to serve in a certain ministry, if you have a certain measure of health, if you have a job, if you have certain possessions or money, if you have clothes, if you live in this or that place, if you can go to school, it is because the Lord decided to give it to you even though you do not deserve it because you're a sinner. We're all sinners. There is no righteous, no, not one. This is sovereign grace. And because of this, you must be grateful to the Lord and use whatever He has given you to honor Him and serve others. Notice a third lesson in chapter 3, lesson 3 of 10, a lesson in redemption. And lesson, a lesson in redemption. And we keep counting here. This is a book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 3, the Lord commanded them to count the Levites and pay for the Levites to take the place of the firstborn and go down to verse 46. You can see these are long chapters. Numbers 3, 46. For the redemption price of the 273 of the firstborn of the sons of Israel who are in excess beyond the Levites, verse 47... You shall take five shekels apiece per head. You shall take them in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. And give the money, the redemption price of those who are in excess among them, to Aaron and to his sons. So, verse 49, Moses took the money of the redemption price from those who were in excess, beyond those, listen to this, redeemed by the Levites. Redeemed. What does redeem mean? To buy back. To buy back. The redemption price is the amount of money you had to pay in order to buy back a person or thing. In the case of Israel, the Lord delivered their firstborn from, the, from death in Egypt, remember, in Exodus chapter 12. And he did that by means of the blood of the Lamb which they placed on the frame of their doors. So God bought back, as it were, the lives of the firstborn of the Israelites through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And because of this, the firstborn belonged to him. But the firstborn could be redeemed or bought back by replacing them with the Levites or by paying five shekels for those who were not covered by the Levites. This will be a key truth that the Holy Spirit would use to prepare Israel for the coming of the Redeemer centuries after Numbers. And we see this throughout the New Testament. For example, in Galatians 3.13, in Galatians 3.13, we read, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That word redeemed in Galatians 3.13 it's a Greek word used to refer to the purchase of the freedom of a slave or someone who owed something. Now remember, God's perfect justice demands that all sin be judged. But Christ freed us, set us free from our slavery to sin and the wrath of God, from the eternal death that we deserve because of our sin. How did he do it? On the cross, he took. Our Lord took our place. 
by receiving the wrath of God that we deserve, and in this way, the perfect justice of God was satisfied. This is an immense blessing. This is what we celebrated this morning in part in the Lord's table. He redeemed us. He brought us back through his death on the cross. Look at chapter 4. Look at the fourth lesson of 10. A lesson in sovereignty. A lesson in sovereignty. In Numbers 4, they counted the Levites. And we also see the responsibilities that the Lord gave to the three different families of Levites. Look at verse 4. Numbers 4, 4. This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting. Concerning the most holy things. Verse 5. And when the camp sits out... Aaron and his sons shall go in and they shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Now, in verses 1 through 20, the sons of Kohath disassembled and packed up all the utensils and furniture of the tabernacle. These were, these, they, they were the, the holy U-haulers of those days. And the sons of Kohath took them away. In verses 21 to 28, the sons of Gershon were in charge of the curtains of the tabernacle. And in verses 29 to 33, we see that the sons of Merari dismantled the structure of the tabernacle. But the greatest privilege was to handle the ark. Because the ark represented the power and the presence of the Lord. And the Lord gave this responsibility to the sons of Kohath. But Gershon was the oldest, not Kohath. And here the Lord chose the younger son over the older son. Ah, does this remind you of some brothers in a similar situation in Genesis? Of course, the older shall serve the younger, Jacob over Esau. And here again in Numbers 4, we see the Lord showing his grace according to his sovereign pleasure. And this is also true for us. If we are saved, it is because of his sovereign, unconditional election, as Romans 9 says. And even as the families of the Levites, as members of Christ's body, the church, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Lord decides what spiritual gift he gives us at the moment he saves us. He decides how we use that spiritual gift, when we use that spiritual gift, where we use it, and with what results. And what should be our response? Humble worship, demonstrated in faithful, grateful service to His church. Look at chapter 5. Here comes the fifth lesson that helps you to cultivate a spiritually refined life. A lesson in integrity. A lesson in integrity. After the lists of chapters 1 to 4, in chapters 5 and 6, the Lord focused on their personal devotion to Him. And here in Numbers chapter 5, the Lord gave the Israelites three sets of instructions to be ritually clean. And here we have a unique passage at the end. Look at Numbers 5.11. Numbers 5.11. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Verse 12, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, 
and 13, a man lies sexually with her, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she's undetected. That's key. Notice that. Hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected. But she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, and she has not been caught in the act. This was totally hidden from the husband. But in verse 14, he was jealous. He had to go through a process. This process was to confirm if his wife, if his wife had been unfaithful to him. And go down to verse 27. This is the conclusion of the process. Verse 27, the priest did this. In verse 27, so he, the priest, will have her drink the water. This was a special beverage that the priest prepared. And it will be that if she has defiled herself and has been unfaithful to her husband, that the water which brings curses will go into her to cause bitterness, and her abdomen will swell, and her thigh will fall away, and the woman will become a curse among her people. What does it mean that her thigh will fall away? We really can't be sure, but because of verse 28, this was something that seems to be connected to an inability to have children. The Lord somehow used this liquid to bring this condition on this woman. Now, why do this Why do this only with women and not with men? Some people take this passage and say, look at that. God is, is a chauvinist. He's against women. Why did he do that with women and not with men? Why do this only with women and not with men? In order to protect women. Because remember, as illustrated in Genesis, again, chapter 38 with Judah. In those days, men were inclined to abuse their power over women, as we always are because of our sinful tendency. But this process would have also protected wives from false accusations. Also, in Leviticus, we see that men and women face the death penalty for adultery. So there's no partiality here. This is an expression of protection. And this would have encouraged the Israelites to live again spiritually refined lives In private, even in those areas where no human being knew, but only the Lord knew. Of course, this is something exceptional. It was, as many other areas in the law, this was only applied at the time of the law. But here's a very important principle. Listen, we can hide certain sins from the eyes of some people. But we can never hide our sin from the eyes of the Lord. We can never hide sin from God. We live before God. 1 Timothy 6, 13 reminds us. This should motivate us to live a life of obedience to the Lord. A spiritually refined life. Even in areas that others may not know about your life. But the Lord does. I mean, it's a... It's a just as when you're being watched by a security camera, when you know you're being watched by a security camera at a bank or even here on campus, you behave, don't you? I mean, you're tempted, if you're tempted to do something that you shouldn't even, even treat your wife in a sinful way or do something that you shouldn't, even just pick your nose or something like that, you see the camera, not necessarily sinful, but a little embarrassing in some situations. 
I mean, you look at the camera, you, no, maybe I shouldn't. Never mind. Maybe you, you, you go another way with your finger. <laughs> well, remember, the Lord has a security camera watching you all the time. He doesn't, literally, of course. This is just an illustration. But the point is, the, eyes, the ways of man are in the eyes of the Lord. We live in the presence of God all the time. It's as if our Lord has a security camera watching us all the time in all we do, in all we think and want. So behave. We need to be faithful by His grace. Go to chapter 6. Here's a sixth lesson of 10. A lesson in prayer. A lesson in prayer. In Numbers chapter 6, we see more instructions for living a holy life, a spiritually refined life. Numbers 6.1, again, Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself as a Nazarite to Yahweh. Who was a Nazarite? A Nazarite was a man or woman who made a vow to dedicate himself to the Lord. This vow was voluntary, voluntary. It lasted for as long as the person who made the vow wanted. And in verses 3 to 21, we see that a, that a Nazarite had to refrain from alcoholic beverages and vine products and from cutting his or her hair and had to avoid all contact with a corpse. Now, when we hear that about the corpse, it is not as if he saw a corpse and thought, I want to touch it. How tempting. Help me, help me. But I can't because I'm a Nazarite. No, this had to do more with how they dealt with a relative who had died. They had to avoid contact with the body. Why avoid contact with a dead body? In order not to be contaminated in the ceremonial sense. But why did God forbid that he not cut his hair? Because apparently it was a visible sign of the vow that he had made. Remember Samson? If we had lived in those days, if we wanted to make a Nazarite vow, some of us with not a lot of hair would have probably ended up looking a little weird. With a few long hairs, angel pasta style, thin and long coming out of our head. But how could we apply this? I mean, the, the Nazarite vow does not apply to us, of course, in our day. We could apply this truth of dedication to the Lord in terms of Ephesians 4.1. The Lord commands us to walk in a manner worthy of all that the Lord has given us in Christ. For us, our devotion to Christ is mandatory. He is our master. We are his slaves. But we do it voluntarily by the power of his spirit out of love for him. But look at verse 22, number 622. Here comes one of the best known texts from the book of Numbers. At least you've seen this in, a, in some sort of card, Christmas card or some sort of card. Look at it, it's beautiful. Number 622. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, verse 23, Speak to Aaron and to his son saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, Notice, this is a prayer that the priests had to offer to God. This is a beautiful and encouraging prayer. Verse 24. This is how Aaron 
and his sons had to pray for Israel. Verse 24, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Here they were asking Yahweh, the self-sufficient Lord, the eternal Lord, the faithful God, to provide materially for Israel and to protect Israel. That's what bless you and keep you means, to provide materially and to protect Israel. Verse 25 continues with the prayer. Yahweh make his face shine on you. This is a symbolic way to ask God, of asking God to show his goodness to Israel. Verse 25 at the end, and be gracious to you. Here they ask God to show them kindness, even though they did not deserve it. And verse 26 continues, Yahweh lift up his face on you. The idea of this phrase is that God will see them with pleasure, with delight, and at the end of verse 26, and give you peace. This word translated peace in number 626 is that well-known Hebrew word shalom. Shalom means security, total well-being. And notice verse 27. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I then will bless them. This indicates that only he, Yahweh, is the source of these blessings and that he would give them these blessings requested by Aaron and his sons. Were they supposed to offer this prayer right away? Probably. Did they have to repeat it? The text doesn't say. Probably the Lord wanted them to repeat it from the heart throughout their generations. But here's a key question for us. Should we repeat this prayer hoping that the Lord will fulfill it? Well, you can't repeat it, but keeping in mind three principles. Number one, don't repeat it mechanically without thinking, as if it was a magic formula. Second principle, remember that it was for Israel under the old covenant. We are the church, not Israel. We participate in the new covenant. Therefore, you cannot expect the Lord to answer this prayer in the same way that he would have answered it for Israel. And third principle, it reminds us that the Lord is the source of all blessings and that he longs to give us good things according to his will, as Matthew 7, 7 to 12 says. Remember, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of light, starting with our salvation. James 1, 17. So this is a, a beautiful prayer. And here's lesson number seven. Chapter seven, we keep moving. Numbers chapter seven. Here's lesson number seven. To cultivate a spiritually refined life. A lesson in giving. A lesson in giving. Now, with their life spiritually refined, so to speak, by the instructions in chapters 1 to 6, in chapters 7 to 10, the Lord focused on His presence among them. Numbers chapter 7 is one of the longest chapters in the Bible. It has 89 verses. 89 verses. This could be a trial for some. I mean, if you're in a hurry and you're doing your one-year Bible reading, and the day you wish you had a short chapter like Psalm 1, you come across number 7, 89 verses. But just as with the rest of the Scriptures, Numbers chapter 7 helps us to understand something more about our Lord, 
and our life as believers. In number seven, the leader of each of the 12 tribes of Israel brought an offering to dedicate the altar of the tabernacle. And they did this for 12 days, one day per tribe. And again, you see the prominence of the tribe of Judah in verse 12 as they presented their offering first. And look at the final count in verse 88. Look at verse 88. Look at how many animals they sacrificed in those 12 days. And all the oxen, verse 88, for the sacrifice of peace offerings, 20, 80, it says, I'm sorry, here we go again, I, I misread here. Verse 88, and all the oxen for the sacrifice of peace offerings, 24 bulls, all the rams, 60, the male goats, 60, the male lambs, one year old, 60. This was the dedication offering for the altar after it was anointed. Now, Here's a conclusion. Three characteristics. You see a little bit of this in verse 88. The rest you'll have to trust me and go back and read the first 87 verses. But here's a conclusion. Here you find three characteristics, three features of the offering of the 12 tribes. One, it was voluntary. It was voluntary. God did not command them to do this. Two, it was humble. It was humble. There was no tribe that gave more than another. There was no tribe that wanted to stand out. And three, God was pleased with this offering. God was pleased with this offering. It was voluntary, it was humble, and it pleased the Lord. Look at how it pleased the Lord, verse 89. Verse 89, Now when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. So he spoke to him. And listen, this is incredible. God spoke audibly to Moses. But why say this in verse 89 after describing the offerings of the 12 tribes? Apparently to show that the Lord was pleased with the offerings brought to him. And these three principles are repeated by the New Testament for us in the area of giving. First of all, our offering should be voluntary. Our offering should be voluntary. We see this in 2 Corinthians 9.7. Secondly, our offering should be with humility. With humility. We see this in 2 Corinthians 8.4. And number three, our offering should be joyous. Should be joyful so that our Lord is pleased as we see in 2 Corinthians 9-7. Look at lesson number 8 in Numbers chapter 8. In Numbers 8, we find lesson number 8, a lesson in obedience. A lesson in obedience. Remember that in the last verse of chapter 7, we saw Moses talking to God inside the tabernacle. But Moses obviously needed a light. To be able to see inside the tabernacle. I mean, the tabernacle did not have windows. Remember, Josiah explained this to us. And here at the beginning of chapter 8, we find the lampstand that had to be lit inside the tabernacle. And from what we see in Exodus 25, these instructions in Numbers 8, 1 through 4, supplemented what the Lord had commanded regarding the lampstand. And in the last part of chapter 8, 
the Lord commanded Moses to dedicate the Levites. Why? To mark the beginning of the work. Remember that the Levites were going to be the assistants to the priests. As they protected and transported the different parts of the tabernacle. As we saw in Numbers chapters 3 and 4. And when they used the tabernacle for the first time. They dedicated the Levites to the work that God assigned them. And notice how chapter 8 verse 3. Notice how it emphasizes their obedience to God's word. This is a key truth repeated in Numbers chapters 1 to 10. Numbers 8 3. Aaron therefore did so. He mounted its lamps at the front of the lampstand. And listen to this. Just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Verse 4. Now this was the workmanship of the lampstand. Hammer work of gold. From its base to its flowers. It was hammered work. And here again. According to the pattern which Yahweh had shown Moses. So he made the lampstand. Look at verse 22. Numbers 8, 22. Then after that, the Levites went in to perform their service in the tent of meeting before Aaron and before his sons. And again, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so they did to them. The Lord commanded Moses and Moses told the Levites what the Lord had commanded. And they obeyed what the Lord commanded. And here you have a simple but profound example of how to teach and how to obey Scripture. How do you teach? How do you preach the Word of God to your children, to your co-workers? How do you evangelize? How do you help someone to understand the Scriptures? We teach and preach just as the Lord commanded in His Word. We don't need... The Lord has called us to be preachers, not editors. He doesn't give us a word and tell us, well, think about it. You take away or add as you please, according to what you believe is best. No, it's given to us. We preach it as it is, not just the parts we like. And just like Israel here, the Lord wants you to obey all the things that he commanded in his word. Not just what seems reasonable to you. Obviously, all things properly interpreted. Please don't go and do the Numbers 5 thing with your wife, okay? With the beverage. There are no Old Testament priests. Everything properly interpreted, you obey. Not just what seems reasonable to you, but also what does not seem reasonable to you. Not only what you find pleasant, but also what you find unpleasant. By His grace, we must be doers of His word, not only hearers. And here, we're getting close to the end with lesson number nine. A lesson in remembrance. A lesson in remembrance. Numbers 9 is very important. Because we come to the second time here, here in Numbers chapter 9. We come to the second time in the history of Israel. In which they celebrated the Passover. The first one had been a year before when they left Egypt. Remember Exodus chapter 11, Exodus chapter 12. These would have reminded them of how the Lord set them free from their slavery in Egypt. How he protected them in one word. How he redeemed them. 
This would have refined their thinking in order to refine their life by being faithful to the Lord. Look at verse 5. Look at their obedience in Numbers 9.5. And they celebrated the Passover in the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai. And here again, according to all that Yahweh had commanded Moses, so the sons of Israel did. Now remember, our Lord transformed, as our pastor was reminding us this morning, our Lord transformed the Passover into the Lord's Supper, showing that He was the Lamb to whom the Passover Lamb pointed. And just as we did this morning, every time we celebrate the Lord's table, we remember that He is the only Lamb that takes away our sin. He's the one who was pointed to by so many lambs killed at Passover's year after year, and that this lamb, although he died to pay the penalty for our sin, rose again. And for this reason, Paul said that we should celebrate the Lord's Supper until when? Until he comes. Ah, great truth. The Lord's table also reminds us that he's going to return to establish his millennial kingdom. And as Christians, we will be in his millennial kingdom here on earth, and we will celebrate Passover with him in remembrance of his perfect sacrifice, as Ezekiel 45:21 says. So, every time we celebrate the Lord's table, we get a taste of the worship we will enjoy in the future with him when he will be physically present with us in the millennial kingdom. This is a great encouragement as we come to the Lord's table every time the Lord gives us that privilege. And notice in chapter 10, the last lesson. Here's the last lesson for tonight. Number 10, a lesson in petition. A lesson in petition. Here Israel begins the trip to Canaan. To the land that the Lord promised them. In verses 11 and 12 of Numbers 10. We see that a year and a month had already passed since they left Egypt. They had been camping in Sinai 11 months. And here they begin their journey to their promised land. And look at the last two verses of Numbers 10. Numbers 10.35. Here comes a prayer from Moses. This is the Old Testament version of traveling mercies, as we call them in our day. Remember that the ark represented the power and the presence of the Lord. Numbers 10.35 Then it happened when the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Yahweh, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Verse 36 And when he came to rest, he said, Return, O Yahweh. To the myriad thousands of Israel. Now it is not as if the Lord left them. No. This was a prayer of Moses throughout the journey. It was a prayer to the Lord. In order to ask him to protect them. Moses here was praying for the Lord to protect them. Now obviously this petition again. Does not apply to us directly. We are not. The nation of Israel, we are not in Sinai. We're not under the old covenant. The ark is not with us. But this prayer does remind us of the privilege we have 
to pray to the Lord and to present all our requests with gratitude and submission to him. And he will, by his grace, protect us from fear, anxiety, worry, as Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says. And obviously the Lord will answer our prayers according to his will, according to 1 John 5, 14. So throughout Numbers chapters 1 to 10, our Lord was refining Israel. And these 10 lessons we have covered help us to cultivate a spiritually refined life. That is a holy life. This first generation of Israelites had everything to honor the Lord on this trip. We see that throughout these first 10 chapters. They were ready. They were equipped spiritually, physically, by the Lord's grace, by His provision. Everything was going well up to here. So they did according to Yahweh. The Lord said it. Moses told the people. The people obeyed it. Everything was going well. They were being obedient to the Lord. But starting in chapter 11, a lot of things changed. Because of their sin. And you can do a little bit of reading if you like to get ahead. And if the Lord wills, we'll see that next Sunday. Let's pray to finish our service. Our Father, we are grateful for your word. Never ceases to amaze us. The power of your word, the power of your spirit that in your grace allows us to desire your word, to understand it, to proclaim it. We pray that these truths will be applied to us by the power of your Spirit. Give us wisdom, Lord, to examine our lives in light of your word so that we can apply these truths to our lives. And we pray that if there's someone tonight who has not been redeemed, that you will open their understanding, that they will see that they are captives to their sin, that they are afflicted, that they cannot offer you anything but their sin, and that they don't deserve anything but hell from your hand. And at the same time, that they will understand that in your indescribable love, you offer them forgiveness on the basis of our beloved Lord Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. We pray that you will bring them to you on the basis of the merits of Christ, not on the basis of anything they can do so that they can come to you in repentance and faith, begging you for forgiveness, asking you to have mercy on them. For your glory, amen.